Right, if you go to uh, Matthew chapter 13, I'm going to look at one of the parables that Jesus um, told, the parable of the sower. Um, two types of parables, some of the parables that Jesus told related to the future of Israel and its place in God's plan, particularly in regards to you know the fact that Israel was going to be cut out and you know, replaced by the Gentiles and then in the last days will be grafted back in and you get lots of info, you know, about the end times from um, from the parables. But the second category of parable, and this is the one that we're on tonight, were parables just concerned with the general Christian life, how to, how to be a disciple, you know, insight into what the Christian life means. And uh, the parable of the sower is perhaps one of the, the main ones um, of that time. So Matthew 13, and um, we'll actually read it. Uh, verses 1 to 8 of the actual parable and then we'll move on to verse 18 where Jesus explains it. So, Matthew chapter 13, um, starting from verse 1. That same day Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake. Such large crowds gathered round him that he got into a boat and sat in it while all the people stood on the shore. Then he told them many things in parables, saying, A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places, where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly, but because the, the sorry, it sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered, because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil, where it produced a crop, a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. He who has ears, let him hear. Now that bit is where we're going to see, that's the push behind the parable. If you go to verse 18, and we have Jesus' explanation um, to the disciples of what this means. He says, listen then to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and doesn't understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is the seed sown along the path. The one who received the seed, no, sorry, yeah, the one who received the seed that fell on rocky places is the man who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since he has no root, he lasts only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, he quickly falls away. The one who received the seed that fell among the thorns is the man who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke it, making it unfruitful. But the one who received the seed that fell on good soil is the man who hears the word and understands it. He produces a crop yielding a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. So what we've got here is that Jesus, he's telling us about four different types of people, all who hear the gospel, all right? Now, um, the first one, the seed fell on the path, the birds ate it, the evil one snatches away the word. This, this is someone, an unbeliever, they hear the gospel, they don't get converted. So 
nothing at all. They, they're not born again. That's seed number one. Seeds two, three, and four are all about people who actually become saved. They become Christians. Um, so the first one of this three, you know, batch of three who actually do get saved, uh, the first one of this batch, the seed falls on rocky places and it's scorched by the sun and withers. And this happens very, very quickly. So here is someone, they get converted, they hear the gospel, they're convicted by the Spirit, Jesus reveals himself to them, and they respond. They, they, they bow the knee to Jesus. However, it's very, very short-lived. Because as soon as trouble or persecution comes along, so as soon as this person, they've got converted, and there's a great flurry, okay, that's great, they receive the word with joy, and that's, that's fantastic. But eventually, and before too long, either trouble comes along, they discover how inconvenient it is to follow Jesus. Uh, you know, maybe discover there's so many things they can't do now. Or perhaps they just find themselves disagreeing with him on so many things they fall away. Or maybe persecution comes along. So they start losing their friends. One way or the other, they've come to Jesus, they respond in a great flurry, this is marvellous, this is fantastic, and then before too long they realise that it's not going to be a bed of roses, that this is going to be tough. And so as soon as they discover it's going to be tough, whether it's because there are things they don't want to surrender in their lives, or whether it's because of persecution, whatever the reason, they very quickly fall away. They, they can't hack it. It's too hot in the kitchen, so basically they get out. And they fall away very quickly. They're born again, they're saved, but they fall away. They don't produce any fruit. As we see, the push behind this parable, some people quote this to try and say, look, you can lose your salvation, which is silly. All this shows us is that Christians can fall away. The parable is not dealing with, you know, sort of like whether salvation can be lost. The push behind the parable is whether or not once saved, you bear fruit. That's the push behind the parable. So we've got category number one, people, they get converted, but very quickly they fall away. They produce no fruit at all. Now then, the, the, the third seed, or the second in the category of people who get converted, uh, this is the seed that falls among the thorns. And uh, what happens is that these thorns, they grow up and they choke the seed. Now notice, with this category, because it's thorns growing around them, it takes a while for thorns to grow. So these people, they get converted and they last a bit longer. They pass the first hurdle. The first hurdle, trouble or persecution. They get over that hurdle, they've got converted, and uh, there's a great flurry, they receive the word with joy, oh I'm saved, Jesus is wonderful, that's terrific. And, uh, and then trouble or persecution comes along. There are things in their life, maybe the Lord reveals, and they respond. They realise, oh wow, this is going to be hard to follow the Lord. But nevertheless, they keep going. You know, the first maybe there's persecution, they lose friends. But they say, Jesus is worth it. You know, we, we can take this, we can take the heat, Jesus is worth it. So these people, they're saved, and they get over the first hurdle. So barrier number one, they pass. But... Something else is happening in them, but takes a bit longer. Weeds are growing up and choking them. And what happens to these believers is that eventually they fall, not because of trouble or persecution, but they fall because of something very much more subtle. And Jesus said that it's the worries of life and the deceitfulness of riches. What happens to these believers, they pass the initial hurdles, they pass the initial tests, and then what happens is that bit by bit, that the sheer ordinariness of everyday life, maybe as you get older, normally you, you, you tend to accrue more, don't you? You earn more. Nothing wrong with that, necessarily. But what happens with these believers is that the sheer ordinariness of the everyday Christian life, 
it creeps up on them and bit by bit they're strangled until without realizing it they're thinking more about their job and their future and their prospects and what am i going to buy and where are we going to go on holiday suddenly bit by bit they're thinking more about all that and nothing wrong with all of that but they're thinking more about all that than the lord himself and so then they fall away all right the weeds bit by bit have strangled them but the thing is when this gets you you realize when it's too late and you know the, these people they also fall away and they bear no fruit now, that tells us something immediately we can understand that the people fall away immediately because of trouble or persecution maybe they only follow the law for a few weeks or a few months we can understand that they've borne no fruit can't we because it, it's, it's all over it's a puff of wind it hardly lasts but these people the ones who are strangled by the weeds they've maybe gone on for a few years um, in the Bible, for instance, Paul talks about one of his co-workers workers called Demas. And he says, Demas has forsaken me, gone back to the world. Well, there was Demas on an apostolic team. He'd been a Christian for years, and yet the weeds got him. Now, but we would tend to say, oh, but he bore fruit for some considerable years, didn't he? Now, it's interesting. According to the Bible, you don't start bearing fruit actually until the issue of not falling away is settled if someone falls away they fall no fruit in both these instances whether they've fallen away quickly or whether they've made it for a few years but then fall away because of the deceitfulness of riches the cares of this life all right christians like that have been following the law for years and then they fall away in both instances they haven't borne any fruit because the point is discipleship is for life and it's only when this issue, that there is actually no way out, your bridges are burned behind you, it's only then that the issue of fruit bearing comes into it. And of course, the fourth seed, the last seed, the good soil, all right, these are people who get converted, they don't fall away. I mean, they follow the Lord for the rest of their lives. They do not go back to the world, be it on account of trouble or persecution, or be it on account of the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches. These believers, they endure, they follow the law for the rest of their lives, and that's what the Lord expects. And it's only of those, that seed, people who get converted and follow the Lord until their dying day, until they go to glory. It's that category, and that category alone of Christian, that Jesus here says bears fruit, all right. And, um, but what's interesting, all right, is that the push behind it is that even though believers who follow the law for their whole lives, no falling away, even yet those believers bear differing degrees of fruit. And that's the push behind the parable here. So what we've got, all right, we've got four types of people who hear the gospel. First one doesn't even get converted, nothing, all right? Now that leaves us with three differing types of people who hear the gospel, they all get saved. They're all born again, all right? The first two, they fall away. They don't persevere. One type falls away very quickly, trouble or persecution, like initial difficulties, no staying power at all, all right? The second type lasts longer, maybe even years and years, but eventually still falls away because just, you know, the love of riches and all that gets the better of them, all right? So two don't persevere. But we are interested in this talk because it's the push behind the parable we're interested in number four 
we're interested in the believer who perseveres until the end and the reason we're interested in that is because that is what we expect of each other that is what I expect of all of you and I sincerely hope that that is what you expect of me I mean there is no excuse for falling away you know absolutely none so we are interested in number four we take it for granted obviously that as believers there's no backing out for us we're not going to fall away we're going to need God's grace nothing special about us it's all a gift from God only the Lord can enable us to persevere to the end but nevertheless precisely because everything we need is there there's no excuse for falling away so we're going to take it for granted that though we depend utterly on the Lord we are not going to fall away and that is a given I'm simply taking that for granted but nevertheless what we've got to see is that even given that we are of those Christians who don't fall away and I don't say that as anything special about us no Christian in any church should ever fall away it's a scandal when Christians fall away you know I mean in this parable the ones who fell away they're hardly lauded here are they I mean it's a scandal when Christians fall away but given that you know we're, we're working on the assumption look we're following the law for life there's no falling away for us nevertheless given that we can still bear varying degrees of fruit Jesus says a hundredfold sixtyfold and thirtyfold so people who get converted and fall away whether it's after three months or ten years they don't bear any fruit at all ultimately alright because they don't persevere but for Christians who do follow the Lord until death there are these varying degrees of bearing fruit now there are two things here that we've got to just understand first of all the Bible does talk very much in terms that there are people who are weaker brothers or sisters and this tells us that people are given varying degrees of grace you know through varying reasons and when the Bible talks about brothers who are weak it doesn't condemn them it doesn't devalue them in any way at all but it does tell us that some people just because of who they are cannot be reasonably expected to bear a great deal of fruit we all understand that that's no problem the Bible you know kind of says that that's that's okay but obviously um, people can't ever use the weaker brother excuse or thing as an excuse for not bearing much fruit if any of thought well I mean I'm not going to be very fruitful I'm a weaker brother that's my excuse a weaker brother wouldn't actually think like that it wouldn't be part of a genuine weaker brother's thinking because weaker brethren alright are, are giving it their all alright they might just not be able to give as much as other people that's why they're weaker brethren but the point is we're all different and so there's an element that varying degrees of fruit are produced in our lives simply because we're all different we mustn't expect that everyone's going to bear the same amount or type of fruit alright that, that what we're meaning by fruit will become clear as we go through the talk so that's the first point there are varying degrees of fruit firstly because there are weaker brothers people are given varying degrees of grace I think it's worth saying as well that whereas you, you, you do get people that the Bible defines as weaker brethren or weaker sister and full stop it's quite possible that other believers who aren't what you would categorize that at all can nevertheless we can all have weaker brethren bits about us can't we we can have different degrees in our life different areas of our lives where we might you know sort of come under the weaker brethren type category just in that one area of life 
but that must never be used as an excuse for slackness or anything else in the rest of life. So that's number one, we've got the weaker brother syndrome. But the second thing to note, and this is you know, sort of like the real push behind tonight, is this. Weaker brother syndromes aside, we nevertheless, and this is just the truth, read through the Bible from beginning to end and this is what you're left with, alright? It is nevertheless the, less the case that we will produce as much fruit as ultimately we want to and we decide to. Or to put it another way, the truth of living the Christian life is that ultimately we're going to be as holy as we choose to be. And that's the push and that's the challenge behind this parable that Jesus tells. Because remember, we are commanded in the Bible to bear much fruit. Jesus said, I've chosen you, that you bear much fruit. And there's a real sense in which it's up to us how much fruit we actually go on to bear. And so really what we're talking about, what this parable is about, and what we're talking about tonight, is growing in the Lord. Because it's as you grow in the Lord that we produce fruit. What we're talking about tonight is going on to maturity. Fruit grows. Fruit ripens. Fruit matures. And that's why the Bible uses the language of maturity and growing up in the Lord. Because fruit is something that grows as we grow in the Lord. And so that's the subject tonight, going on to maturity. That is what the Lord wants each one of us to be doing. And so let's, let's ask ourselves, all right, we need to bear fruit, we need to go on and be maturing in the Lord, all right? We need to grow up in the Lord. So if we do, what, what is it that that maturity will produce in us then? What exactly is it that we're going to be aiming for? I mean, if we say, look, we need to be maturing in the Lord, then what, what is the goal? What is it that we're heading for? If we're told to bear fruit, what is this fruit? What is the harvest that comes from the seed that God has planted in us? Well, I just want to isolate three, three things, and they're all different aspects of what Christian maturity is all about. So that the point is, if a believer is genuinely maturing in the Lord, then these three things are going to be growing in that believer. It doesn't mean that they're all full grown, necessarily, but the point is, they ought to be appearing. Okay, And the first one is stability. The first sign of a believer who's coming into maturity is stability. If you go to Ephesians, we're going to be reading a fair bit from the Bible tonight, but that's, that, that, that's great, you know, to really underline all this. But go to Ephesians 4 and verse 14. And look what Paul says. He says, then we will no longer be infants. So here he's talking about, don't keep being a baby in the Lord, grow up. He says, then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. So can you see that here Paul is saying that immaturity is all over the place. Uh, you know, here and there. You know, the, the picture of like, you know, a little cork 
on in the sea, tossed all over the place, you know, into this thing and then into that thing, into this fad, into that fad, all over the place. And that's a sign of immaturity, and that is one of the things that the Lord, as we grow in him, is going to deliver us from in our lives. There are different ways in which we can be all over the place. Uh, it, I mean, sort of here, he's, he's particularly talking about, you know, sort of like baby Christians who are faddy about doctrine. And this, this is a great problem on the Christian scene today. Uh, you know, sort of like many, many Christians, they sort of, they get hold of a new doctrine. I mean, the doctrine might or might not be biblical, but they get hold of something new and then that's it. Everything else they've learned goes out the window and they're onto that one truth. Completely out of balance, completely out of context. And they run with that for all their worth. Two weeks later, they've read another book. Well, the doctrine they were into last week, out the window, and now it's something new, isn't it? And they're all over the place. You never know where they're going to be in that sense. They, it underlies to show they don't actually know what they believe. You know, they're, they're just here and there, they're everywhere. But also the stability needs to be in other areas of life as well. Um, I mean, some believers, uh, you know, they're kind of like, they blow hot and cold, don't they? And, you know, you, you think at the moment that now, I, I wonder if they're hot with the Lord at the moment, or are they going to be cold? Are they up, or are they going to be down? You know, sort of like, if I go and see them, like, you know, are they likely to be edifying, are they likely to be in a mood? Do you know, you know are they going to be building people up, they're going to be all depressed and fed up and stuff? Well, yeah, there's a genuine time when we get down and we need to be built up. But can you see what I mean? This all over the place. There's no stability. There's no consistency tend to find with these people if they're feeling blessed they're right there with the Lord you know but if they're not feeling blessed or, or, or the feelings are negative they cave in and they go with the feelings so last week they were on fire for the Lord now they're kind of drooping and wilting and you know just just lost in the morass of self-pity because life is so hard for them now can you see that maturity because maturity looks to the Lord and, and therefore circumstances and feelings are neither here nor there. Therefore maturity, because it's looking to the Lord, and because the Lord doesn't change, maturity is going to be consistent. So the point is, mature believers, they'll have their head down following the Lord, virtually regardless of what's happening around them. And yes, there can always be very exceptional circumstances, but can you see, by and large, immaturity is unstable. You know, you, you, you can't 100% depend on immature believers. Do you know what I mean? Because they're all over the place. And if we're growing into maturity, then we ought to be able to look at ourselves and see that we're becoming more stable. We're becoming more consistent. That rather than it being up and down, up and down, up and down like a yo-yo. That I mean, our feelings might be up and down like a yo-yo, yes. But our behaviour, our following the Lord is becoming more and more consistent so that we're, as it were, controlled not by feelings and not by the vagaries of circumstances which change all the time but that we're controlled by faith in the Lord and by obedience to his word. So that's the first thing. Maturity will produce stability in our lives, a consistency. An overwhelming sense of with whoever it is that we're talking about, say Christian A, alright, now here's Christian A a mature believer, you'll know where you stand with Christian A because they're stable. You know, I mean, you might go round and, you know, need a bit of help. Well, e even if they're having a bit of a bad time, you're going to be greeted with a smile. 
you know, you're not going to get this thing that they open the door and you say, oh, I'm having a really bad day, and they're, well, not as bad as mine. It's, you're going to meet, you're going to be built up, because that person is consistent, not all over the place in any way at all. So that's the first thing. The second sign of maturity, and, and this now, you know, sort of like in, involves our corporate life, is that when a church of believers is maturing, you get corporate unity born of individual peace. Now if you go to 1 Corinthians 3, I'll, I'll show you exactly what I mean by that. Corporate unity born of individual peace. Because of course, there's only unity between more than one person when the individuals in that group are at peace within themselves. So 1 Corinthians 3, and uh, let's read verse 1 to 4. And he says, Brothers, I could not address you as spiritual, but as worldly, mere infants in Christ. So again, you immediately see the context here is immaturity as opposed to maturity. And he says, I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. So he's writing to the Corinthians, he's saying, look, you're still breastfeeding, for heaven's sake. He says, you're old enough for solid food, but you're still breastfeeding. Indeed, you are still not ready, you are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarrelling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere men? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere men? And if you just go over to verse 10, and he says, um, sorry, go back into chapter 1, verse 10. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another, so that there may be no divisions among you, and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. And in the Corinthian church, because individually they weren't maturing, they were still carrying on years after their conversion, as if they'd only just got converted. Because, I mean, if you suddenly, you know, sort of say, say saw 20 or 30 people suddenly converted, well, I mean, it might not come as any surprise if a week later they're bickering and arguing and, well, fair enough, they're baby Christians. I mean, they might not even realise it's wrong at that point. But the Corinthian church, here were believers, they've been believers for years, and they were still bickering and quarrelling. They were still dividing off into little groups. You know, this is my clique. My clique's better than your clique. And uh, cliques were firing little spiritual missiles at each other across the hall, as it were. And, and Paul's saying, look, for heaven's sake, will you please grow up? I have to keep treating you as if you're babies. He says, you know, I want to come along. I want to be feeding you steak. You know, I want to be, you know, sort of like introducing you to, you know, sort of like what grown-up life is all around, you know, about. And yet instead I'm coming along with nappies for you. And so the point is that when you get immaturity in the Christian life, one of the signs of it is bickering and arguing and people fighting for their rights. Now, when baby Christians bicker and argue and fight for their rights, well, that's not fair. I don't think I'm getting a fair deal. Well, that's fine. We expect that in baby Christians. We were all like that when we were baby Christians. But the Lord wants us to be growing out of that. Because one of the things about maturity is that we grow up into the Lord. More and more we're growing in the life of Jesus himself. Now, what was the mainstay of Jesus' life? It was putting himself 
last. So if you're not putting yourself first, you're far less likely to end up in situations where you're bickering with another brother or sister because you think you've got a raw deal from them. I mean, Paul wrote to the Corinthians. I mean, one of the things that they were doing uh, was that sort of like they were defrauding each other. They were, you know, fiddling each other in business affairs, going into partnership and taking each other to the cleaners, and it was awful. And what was happening is that they were then, if, you know, if someone in the church did them out of some money, they were then going before the civil authorities. They were going before non-Christians to have judgment given on the financial affairs of Christians. And Paul says, this is a scandal. He said, what, you're taking each other to court before the world? He says, that, that, that is crazy. And what he says, he said, it would be better to be defrauded than to do that. That's maturity. I mean, you know, if, if I think you've, you know, you've done me wrong, all right? Now, immaturity wants its power of flesh, wants to be vindicated, wants it to be seen that I'm right and they're wrong. That's what immaturity wants. What does maturity say? Maturity values unity and values the well-being of that brother or sister more than it does its own rights. That is self-sacrifice. That is what Jesus is like. Jesus wasn't thinking of himself when he died on the cross. And so therefore, I mean, you know, when you get, you know, splits in churches, when you get Christians falling out with each other, you'll always find that on, le that on at least one side, I mean, sometimes you get Christian B falling out with Christian A, and Christian A hasn't actually done anything wrong. But when Christians divide and you get bickering in the body of Christ, it's either because one of the parties or both of the parties are just showing immaturity uh, and each arguing, you know, protecting their own rights and stuff like that. Paul says, no, 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 that is immaturity. It is better to be wronged and smile through that being wronged and pray for the person who's wronged you and keep on loving them. It is better to do that than to react in a wrong way and make the division go even deeper. Now, I mean, yes, there can be a time, and Jesus makes it quite clear, there can be a time when you might legitimately need to go to a brother who's sinning against you and correct him. We're not saying that maturity just lets wrong things go by. We're not saying that at all. What we're saying is that maturity doesn't have the need to defend itself and to stick up for itself all the time. And if maturity ever steps in to deal with discord or to correct, it does so not because it's protecting its own rights, it's doing so for the benefit of the person who's being, you know, sort of like put right. So it's not a selfish thing. And so we've got the bickering, immature Corinthian church, factious, you know, I'm with him, or I'm not, I'm with him, or I'm not, I'm with them, all right, going on. You've got the immature Corinthian church, and yet you've got the maturity that Paul longed for in regards to them. He says, look, I didn't want to treat you as infants, but I'm still having to. And Paul was, 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 was really quite robust with the Corinthian church, trying to get them to grow up. It wasn't what he expected. He expected them to be growing out of that kind of behaviour. And of course, that would be the same for us. If we are maturing, then we ought to be seeing a lessening of any aspect of that in our lives. We're not saying that completely free from it, Although, praise God, there can come a time when there are things that, you know, were a real problem and we're free from them. We're not saying that just because someone can every now and then, you know, lose their call a bit. We're not saying they're not maturing, but the point is the graph ought to be going down. Do you see what I mean? The immature behaviour ought to be 
getting less and less and the mature behaviour getting more and more. That's what we're aiming for. So that's the second thing, corporate unity born of individual peace. Because the more you mature, the more you grow in the Lord, the more you are at peace with the Lord. And it is the case that if you're at peace with the Lord, you don't need to be at war with anyone else. And in James he says, look, well, you know, where do all the wars come from? He says it's your own desires fighting away in your bodies. It's because you're obsessed with what you want. You know, I'm going to get what I want at any cost. And, you know, there's, there's maybe aggression in you or, you know, th you know, things like that. You feel threatened, so you react defensively and you lash out. The, it, maturity doesn't need to... Because if you're at peace with Jesus, then you can be at peace with those around you. And therefore, this divisiveness that we see in the Corinthian church peters away uh, because there's peace individually. And if you get a room full of individuals who are at peace with God, they're going to be at peace with each other. And let's say that one individual loses their peace with God and therefore starts being divisive in regards to the others. The others will just cover it with, with love. They won't join in. That divisiveness needn't spread. So maturity all the time lessens this thinginess that is ready to get in there with my opinion and this is what I want and, and, and I've got to have my way. That, that, that is immaturity and one of the things that the Lord wants us to be growing out of. And then thirdly, and, and in some ways this is kind of like an umbrella thing, it covers everything, but maturity is going to lead to an increased holiness of life, a general holiness in the way we live. If you go to 1 Peter, and chapter 1, We'll read verse 15 first. Right, 1 Peter chapter 1. And he says, But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, Be holy because I am holy. So there's Peter dealing with holiness. Now, if you go to chapter 2, and uh, I'm going to read verse 2 first, and then I'm going to read verse 1. He says, Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. There you have it again, growing into maturity. Now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. So here, Peter's talking about holiness. And now he's talking about it in the sense of growing up. If you're going to grow in the Lord, you're going to grow into holiness. Now we'll read the verse before. And this is what it means in practical terms. He says, therefore, rid yourselves of all malice. What's malice? Wrong feelings towards other people. And all deceit. That's being dishonest. Right? Hypocrisy. That's showing one face, but really having another. Um... Envy, that's when you're jealous of someone because you think they're blessed more than you. If someone is blessed more than you, you ought to be glad. Not, not, not jealous, you ought to be rejoicing for them. And slander of every kind. Because immaturity and sin always reacts with slander. Destructive talking, basically is what slander is. Destructive talking about people. And, you know, so here, Peter is saying, look, to grow in the Lord, to come into maturity, is to come into general holiness. And he says, how do you do it? He says, well, you do it by ridding yourselves of malice. He says, stop being malicious. 
you grow in the Lord by not being deceitful anymore. Can you see, in the sense he's saying you can be as holy as you actually want to be. Yes, of course, as we go through the years with the Lord, the Lord is going to give us more and more grace. But nevertheless, we can never excuse what's wrong now by saying, well, I haven't got that grace. Because the point is, we're nevertheless as holy as we choose to be. Can you see the point there? You know, we've got to make sure that we're really doing our bit. And so therefore, what we're seeing here is that as Christians, we ought to be growing. We all ought to be maturing. We all ought to be bearing more and more fruit all the time. If you go to um, Colossians, Colossians chapter 1, And verse 10, this is Paul's prayer for the Christians in the Colossian church. He says, and we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. That's that's what the Lord wants from you and I. That we might lead a life worthy of him, that we might please him, and that we might bear fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. So, therefore, we've got to ask this question. So how do we grow in the Lord? Right, we're seeing we ought to be maturing. We can be maturing. It's quite viable. We do not have to, you know, to be like newborn babes all the time. I mean, never ever in the Bible does it ever excuse people who remain spiritual babies. Always the exhortation to them is stop being babies, for heaven's sake, grow up, all right? So therefore we're seeing that we ought to grow up and we can grow up in the Lord. We can bear fruit. So then, now we've got to ask the question, right, so what do we do? What is it going to be that we do that is really going to facilitate this maturing in the Lord? Or what do I do as a Christian in order to make sure that I'm growing in the Lord and bearing fruit? Well, I'm just going to give you three very basic, simple things. Nothing complicated about them, but it's simply the case. If we are faithful in these things, then we are going to see growth in our lives. If we're not faithful in these three things, we're not going to see grace, uh, growth in our lives. And whether or not we respond is entirely up to us. Any maturity in our lives, any fruit, it's the Lord bearing that fruit through, through us. It's the fruit of the Holy Spirit. But nevertheless, we must cooperate with the Lord in order for him to do that. So therefore, we're back to the fact that at the end of the day, we're going to bear as much fruit as we want to. And these are the things that we have got to be doing. Now then, the first one, I'd say, and th this is so simple, but it's so easy to miss. The first thing we've got to do is we've got to believe God's promises and we've got to trust him. As basic, but sometimes as difficult as that. Go to James, the letter of James. James, if you find chapter 1, 
and uh, start reading from verse 5. James chapter 1 and from verse 5 and he says this If any of you lacks wisdom he should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to him. Wisdom at the end of the day is how to live, isn't it? But when he asks he must believe and not doubt because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea. And we saw that in Ephesians, didn't we? Immaturity, tossed to and fro, like, you know, by the sea. Blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. Back to the instability there, aren't we? So, what's James talking about? Wisdom. What is wisdom? Wisdom is the application of knowledge. The knowledge we have in the Word of God as ha of how the Lord wants us to live. So therefore, this is fundamentally, you want to live the Christian life? Ask God to show you. But if you do, believe that he's going to. And if you don't believe that, if you're double-minded, if you don't have faith, if you don't trust him, then what's going to happen? You won't receive from the Lord what you're asking for. Rather than living the Christian life, you're just going to be all over the place, unstable, double-minded in all your ways. And can you see that connection there? That James is saying, look, to mature in the Lord, to come to stability, rather than this being all over the place, the thing that you've got to do is whatever it is you're asking from the Lord to enable you to live that Christian life and to grow in the Lord, you've got to believe that the Lord is actually going to answer your prayer. You've got to believe, you've got to trust that the Lord is actually working in you to do it. If you don't have that fundamental, settled trust in the Lord and, and, and belief in the promises that he's given us, if that is not settled, then there will be no stability. We're saved from the penalty of sin by faith. We receive it as a free gift. We believe, we trust the Lord for it. And that's how we were saved from the penalty of sin. How are we going to be safe from the power of sin? By trusting the Lord, because it's him who's going to do it in us. We receive it from him as a free gift. It's not us being made holy of ourselves, it's the fact that Jesus lives in us, it's his life coming through us. But we must trust the Lord. That is our bit. And if we're not trusting the Lord, then we're not going to grow and instability and baby Christian will be our lot. I mean, if you think about it, trusting the Lord, believing what God says about himself, his very character is at the heart of this. And one of the things that, 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 that Satan loves to do, I mean, Satan is a slanderer. Satan is a blasphemer. He hates the Lord. Now, what do you do to someone you hate? You slander them. But you're only slandering them for one reason. If you hate someone and you're slandering them, but no one's believing your lies about them, you get no satisfaction. The satisfaction is that your lies about them are being believed. That's the satisfaction of slander, that you get people on your side against them. Now, Satan hates the Lord. What greater pleasure could Satan derive than getting God's own children, Christians, to believe things about God that aren't true? and to believe that he's horrible and rotten and unfair. And that is, what, that is one of the main aspects of spiritual warfare. 
are the lies of the devil trying to get us to doubt God's character, to doubt his word, which underlying that is maligning his character. It's saying that God is not wonderful, he's not love, he's, he's not truth. But believe, I mean, sometimes we can end up believing things about God which are actually more true of the devil. I mean, think about it, and I think, you know, as we go through this, you'll see how stability and growth comes. All right. The Bible tells us, which is another way of saying, God tells us that he is love. Now, let me ask you, how many rocks do we end up on, shipwrecked, because we're questioning whether or not God loves us? You see, God tells us that he is love. And he's shown his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, before we could give a monkeys about him, when we were totally and absolutely at our worst, he died for us. What more can he do to demonstrate his love? Well, the sinful nature steps in and says, give me whatever I want when I want it. He doesn't because he loves us. And so precisely because God does the best for us, we end up doubting his love for us. Now, that makes for instability, isn't it? Fearing that God doesn't love you and that he's out to get you. Now, that is a lie of the devil that Satan will throw, you know, he, he throws it as often as he can, all right? And any time he can get believers doubting the love of God, he will. And that will make for instability. So how do we counter that? How does that fiery dart get dealt with? Well, we take our shield of faith. And what is the shield of faith? Faith is trust, trusting God's word. God loves us. And no matter how I feel, no matter what I might have coming into my mind from Satan and from circumstances, the truth is that God is love and he loves me. So question, am I going to be a baby Christian doubting God's love every time I don't feel him? Or am I going to be mature, or am I going to come into maturity by settling it that God loves me? Because he says so. How I feel, what's happening, it's got no bearing on it. God loves me because he said so. When Job lost everything, including his family, bar his wife, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. That's maturity, that's stability. Believe God's promises, trust him. You've got to make yourself do it. You've got to make yourself do it. You've got to gird up the loins of your mind, as it rather quaintly says in the King James Version, and you've got to make yourself do it. We decide what we believe. Am I going to believe the word of God? Am I going to believe the lies that Satan is feeding to me? That sign that Dave's got up there, do I believe God or my feelings? That is one of the ways to come into maturity, to say, I'm going to believe God. I'm not going to believe my feelings if my feelings are taking me against what the word of God says. I mean, one of God's promises, Jesus said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. How often have we ended up bearing no fruit and lolloping all over the place because we think he's forsaken us? I know I have. Going through that is part of the process of coming into maturity. But can you see? It's, come, it's believing God's promises, regardless of how you feel, that is going to bring you into maturity. If you, if you believe that the Lord might forsake you, or, or even worse, that he has, you're going to be all over the place. There's going to be no maturity. You're certainly not going to be an advert for this wonderful God we serve to other people. You see? Believe God's promises. Um, the Bible says if we confess our sins, he forgives us our sins and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. 
how often do we spend, you know, sort of like flat on our face in condemnation? See? If we believe the word of God, we might feel condemned, but we won't go with it because, well, no, it's a lie of the devil. So the point is, rather than being immobilized as a disciple because, you know, we've caved in under condemnation, we're going to have our head down and we're going to keep going, regardless of how we feel. And there's going to be stability because we're believing God's word. Romans 8.28, in everything, God works together for good to them that love him and are called according to his purposes. Well, what does that tell us? It doesn't matter what happens to you, it doesn't matter what has happened to you in the past, God is using it for your good. Other people, circumstances, Satan might have meant it to you for evil, but God meant it to you for good. That was what Jake, uh, Joseph told his brothers. He said, look, what you did to me, you know, selling me off as a slave, you meant it to me for evil, but I've forgiven you, and God meant it to me for good because all things work together for good. If Joseph's brothers hadn't thrown him in a pit, he wouldn't have ended up being number two in Egypt, and he wouldn't have then been able to save uh, you know, the Messianic family, the first Jewish family, during the famine and the drought. Whatever happens, God is doing it for our good. Do we believe that? It's our choice. If we think God is doing it for our bad, that's going to be rather depressing, isn't it? We might feel that at times, but we're not going to give in to it. We're going to go with the word of God we're going to believe it so get this God says it I believe it that settles it that is the way to maturity God says it I believe it that settles it there's no more debate that is what is going to take us into maturity we've got to stand against Satan's lies and his deceptions and therefore will grow rather than being all over the place and um just, just go back into Ephesians and find chapter 4. And Paul says, It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, blah, blah, blah. And then down verse 12, To prepare God's people for works of service, so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. And then he says the thing about them will no longer be infants tossed to and fro. Now then, what is the work of leadership in the church? It's, it's to educate and show people how to live in the truth of the word of God. Believing the word of God rather than the lies of the devil, that is what, what going to enable us to grow up into the full stature of Christ to really become mature as believers. Right, now then, the second thing that we've got to do, you go to John's Gospel and find chapter 12. And go to verse 20. There were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the feast. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. Here's some people saying, we want to see Jesus. Now, get this. We want people to see Jesus in us. That, 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 that's the key here. Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. He was talking about his crucifixion. I tell you the truth, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies. Now, can you see the connection with the parable of the sower? Unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. 
But if it dies, it produces many seeds, i.e. a harvest, it produces fruit. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honour the one who serves me. Now here's, here's some people, they're asking the question, we want to see Jesus. So the disciples go and they say, Jesus, there's some guys here who want to see you. Jesus then addresses the point of how the world is going to see Jesus, in, see him in us. And it's, it's through death to self. That corn of wheat goes into the, the, the ground and it dies. Jesus gave his life. And because he gave his life, he produced a harvest of saints. Jesus died and the church came into being. The one seed, thinking not of itself, died for the benefit of other people. And that is the second key to maturity. It's, it's, it's death to self. It's, it, it's understanding that our biggest problem is us. I am my biggest problem. And it's only as the Lord works in me so that I die to myself and live to him that his life can come through me. And then the stability, servanthood, everything that comes with maturity will start to happen in my life. Because with, with us as it were out of the way, Jesus can come through. So death to self, not what I want. What did Jesus pray in the garden? Not my will, but yours be done. And that is the second thing that we've got to be doing in order to come into maturity. It's all the time taking the starts, Lord, not my will, but yours. That denial of self, that putting the Lord and putting others first. Uh, what is it? Joy, J-O-Y, Jesus, others, yourself. This provoked several jokes when we were on holiday, which I won't go into now. Uh, but that's the order. Self-denial, all the time denying self. And then, if we do that, we, as one seed, will then produce a harvest, and the fruit will happen. But if we remain hard, you know, sort of like hanging on to our rights, and, and me, 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 and what I'm going to do for Jesus, and what I ought to be getting because I follow Jesus, if you take that stance and don't fall into the ground and die, that's all you'll be, just one seed. <laughs> all right. But die to self, go into the ground, death to self, and then the harvest is produced. Because with us out of the way, the fruit of the Spirit will come through, rather than, as Paul says in Galatians, the works of the flesh. If we're in the way, it's the works of the flesh. That's what we produce. We can't produce anything else. But if we're dying to self, if the Lord's getting us out of the way, if we're living this sacrificial life, or crucifying ourselves, that's, that, that's the language that the Bible talks about, put to death, therefore, and then list all these things. If that's what we're doing, if we're denying self, then we're going to find that rather than the works of the flesh, it's going to be the fruit of the Holy Spirit. With us out of the way, the Lord himself will come through more and more. And of course that is going to be maturity. And then the third thing, alright, is that if we're to really come into maturity, if we're to grow in the Lord, if we're going to, you know, sort of like what we saw, stability, corporate unity, born of personal peace, and holiness, because th that's what maturity is. If we're to come into that, then thirdly, we've got to make sure that we're accepting the discipline of God in our lives and not kicking against it all the time. We can actually delay our growth by kicking against the Lord too much. Now, the Lord knows that we all kick against him from time to time. Of course we do. But sometimes we can have a real 
really obstinate kicking against the Lord in regards to various things that it's so daft because at the end of the day all it does is prolong the discipline uh, if you go to Hebrews Hebrews chapter 12 we're going to see there are some lessons it really does pay to learn rather quickly um, Hebrews chapter 12 and uh, read from verse from verse 4 and he says, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Now, what that means is that many of the believers to whom he was writing to at this point had been martyred. Because they'd been martyred, they'd resisted sin. Because, of course, if you're facing martyrdom, the sin confronting you is denying Jesus, isn't it? So what he's saying is, look, you, you, you haven't had to have to go the whole hog yet. Other people have been martyred. You haven't had to go that far yet. And he says, and you have forgotten the word of encouragement that addresses you as sons. And then this is quoting from the Old Testament. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you. So the first thing is you can make light of it. You can ignore it. He says, don't do that. Don't ignore God's discipline. But then secondly, you can lose heart. You can get discouraged. You can think you're being disciplined um, because you're, you're not a son of God, when of course the truth is you're being disciplined because you are. So he says, don't lose heart. And he says, because the Lord disciplines those whom he loves, and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. And then he goes on, and he says, endure hardship as discipline, God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined, and everyone undergoes it, then you are illegitimate children if you don't and not true sons. And he says in verse 11, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness for those who have been trained by it. Now you see that key thing, for those who have been trained by it. You can be receiving the discipline of God, but if you don't let yourself be trained by it, rather than producing a harvest of righteousness, it's just going to keep hurting. But if we allow ourselves, if we respond to what he's doing, then it will produce the harvest of righteousness. And go on to verse 14. He says, make every effort to live in peace with all men. Right? That's one of the aspects we saw, wasn't it? Living at peace with people. And to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one misses the grace of God um, and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. So he's saying, look, as God disciplines you, make sure you're responding to what he's doing in the proper way. Um, let's read uh, verse 12 and 13 now. And this is how to handle it. This is how to handle you know, when God is working in your life in this way. He says, therefore strengthen your feeble arms and your weak knees. That's a quote from Isaiah 35. And then he quotes Proverbs, all right, and he says, make level paths for your feet so that the lame may, may not be disabled, but rather healed. And that is quoting Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 26. But the bit earlier, my son didn't make light of the discipline of the Lord, that was quoting from Proverbs as well. Now, what is Proverbs all about? Proverbs is all about wisdom. And wisdom is all about how we live the Christian life. So fundamental to living the Christian life is accepting and responding to 
the discipline of God in our lives so that when he's working in us in the difficult ways showing us things that we perhaps don't really want to see um, taking us through circumstances that we definitely don't want to go through the point is if we surrender to him knowing that he's doing it for our own good then a harvest of righteousness will be produced maturity but if we kick against it we're going to get nowhere it's just going to prolong the agony and it's up to us whether we are trained thereby by God's discipline or whether we kick against it it's up to us and again we're back to this thing we're going to be as holy we're going to be as fruitful we're going to be as mature as we actually when push comes to shove want to be if you go to Psalm 32 a long standing favourite of mine this bit because it is just so true and, and, and its advice is so good Psalm 32 and if, if you read the early verses you'll find that this is King David writing a psalm precisely about God's discipline in his life because of his sin I mean he starts off verse 1 blessed is he whose transgressions are given whose sins are covered blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him and in whose spirit is no deceit then he talks about when he didn't confess his sins it was horrible but then eventually he did and, and then it was good and if you find verse 8 you get this I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go I will counsel you and watch over you do not be like the horse or the mule which have no understanding but must be controlled by bit and bridle or they will not come to you he says don't be like that King David knew what it was to be like that and he said no I'm not I'm going to change because life is easier and I mean there are two ways that we're going to get to heaven there are two ways in which we're going to be glorified we are going to get there nothing can prevent the fact that you and I are going to be glorified but we can get there on the way in two different ways we can go there willingly and responsively or we can be dragged there by bit and bridle fighting every step of the way either way you're going to get there you are going to be glorified just like Jesus you are going to be completely free from sin because you're going to lose this body and then one day you're going to have a glorified body you are going to be perfect just like Jesus but there are two ways we can get there kicking and screaming or responding to the Lord feeling the pain of it yes feeling the pain of it but then coming into maturity in this life is it not tragic I mean the believers who we've already seen in the parable of the sower two types of believer who fall away completely they bear no fruit you know but they're going to be glorified they're going to be in heaven but how tragic that they didn't bear fruit down here now for those of us who persevere to the end how tragic to end up bearing fruit fivefold when you had it in you because of the grace of God to produce tenfold how tragic to only produce thirtyfold if you had grace to produce sixtyfold can you see the point we can get there kicking and screaming or we can get there submitting to the Lord and so the, the, the question is this this is the question we must address ourselves with how mature do we want to be it's up to us it's rather like you know a very rich father who's got all the money in the world has dumped an infinite amount of money on the floor with his children says how much do you want it's there how much do you want now then what has God done what has our father done 
Well, with Jesus and the Holy Spirit, he has come to live inside us. And therefore, pertaining to holiness, he says, how much do you want? It's all here. How much do you want? How much fruit do we actually want to bear? That's the question. It takes time. We're not here talking about that you suddenly become mature overnight. I mean, crumbs, every year that goes by, we should be becoming more fruitful, more and more as it were like Jesus. But the point is, even though it takes time, and of course it does, it's the work of years, nevertheless, are we responding fully to what God has done in us thus far? That's the point. I mean, you know, we're not saying, you know, we're not saying, well, you've got to bear more fruit than you've got grace for. We're not saying that at all. In 10 years' time, you'll have 10 years more grace. You'll bear more fruit. But the point is, are we bearing the fruit according to the grace God has given us up to now? That's the question. Or are we slacking in regards to it? That's, that, that's the question we address ourselves with. If you go to John 13, just various scriptures that we're just going to read now that make the point. John 13 and we're going to start reading from verse 12 this is um, immediately after Jesus has washed their feet when he had finished washing their feet he put on his clothes and returned to his place do you understand what I've done for you he asked them you call me teacher and lord and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. This is the self-denial that we were talking about. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth. No servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. It's so easy for us to stop at knowing these things, especially with the emphasis we have here on the scriptures. Whereas that is a very great blessing that God has given us in this church, it's also a very great danger because it's so easy to stop at knowing these things. Jesus said you'll be blessed, not if you know them, you'll be blessed if you do them. You've got to know these things before you can do them. But how easy it is and how Satan loves it when we stop at knowing these things and think, well, knowing it is enough. Knowing it is not enough. Doing it. Faith, as it were, doesn't just believe in it and it's sort of like, you know, just I believe. Faith, you know, faith believes in the sense of acting on it. I believe in this and I'm going to act on it. That's, you know, that's, that's how we grow. Blessed are you if you do these things. Uh, go back to James. The letter of James again. Chapter 1, again, verse 22. He says, Do not merely listen to the word, and so deceive yourselves. We actually deceive ourselves if we merely know the word. Got to do it. Do what it says. That's nice and punchy, I'll read that again. Do not merely listen to the word, and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself 
goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. Not in what he knows, not in what he believes, but will be blessed in what he does. So, not hearing the word only, doing it. And this thing about, you know, sort of like um, you know, a man who looks at his face in a mirror and then he goes away and he immediately forgets what he looks like. So maybe you, you know, you wake up in the morning, you look in the mirror, great, great clumps of sleep in your eyes. Right, now then, the man who goes away forgetting what he looks like goes to work like that. He has failed to act on what he's seen and had a wash. So he turns up at the office, great clumps of sleep, goo in his eyes. Right? Uh, you look in the mirror, big zit, really needs a bit of attention. You go away, you forget all about it. All right, shaving, cut yourself shaving. By the time you get to work, the blood's down to your collar. You forgot, can you see, you haven't acted on what you've seen. Like, so the point is, you look in a mirror, you see something that needs doing, but you don't do it, you go away, you forget about it. We listen to the word of God, we read the word of God, we see certain things that we've got to do. We go away, don't do them. That's the whole point. We'll mature by doing these things. Uh, go to chapter 2, still in, still in James, verse 26. He says, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. So if you just believe the word but don't do it, yeah, you have faith, you're saved by faith, you're going to heaven, but spiritually you're dead. You're only alive spiritually to the point you're doing what the word of God says. Go to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. As we read through this, ask yourself a question. Is this what you want? It is what I want. It's not what I believe I've fully come into by any means at all, but it's what I want, and I want to keep moving into this. He says, since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. I am going to be glorified, just like Jesus. But the point is, I'd like, I'd, I'd like to shine a bit of that glory out down here as well, you see. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. Well, that's why Jesus died. Well, we don't want to, given that he's died for us and that we're saved, we don't want to keep going on in them, do we? That's what he came to die for. You used to walk in these ways in the life you lived, but now you must rid yourself of all such things as these. Anger, rage, malice, slander and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices. It's an old coat. We took that old coat off when we got converted. And he says, and put on the new self. See, the robe of righteousness. We've put on a different set of clothes now, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there's no Jew nor Greek, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, scythian, slave or free. 
but Christ is all and Christ is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. Can you see in there stability? That's amazing stability, isn't it? Can you see in there, you know, kind of self-denial? Can you see in there holiness? It's all there, isn't it? Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. That solves the problem of all the infighting and bickering, doesn't it? That, that, that solves the problem of corporate peace, you know, unity through personal peace. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And then we get really practical. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it not only when their eye is on you to win their favour, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, as working for the Lord, not for men, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for his wrong, and there is no favouritism. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. That last bit, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And that last bit, we can do it or not do it, up to us. But we'll grow or not grow accordingly. And I mean, with that kind of picture of the Christian life, that's an incredibly comprehensive few verses. That's what I want. More and more, I want that to be true of me. But other people will ultimately know whether what I've just said is actually right or wrong. Because people will see it in me to the point I want it. You see what I mean? It's good that I say that I want it. If you say that that's what you want, that is good that you're saying it. But the proof of the pudding won't be in the fact that we've said it. The proof of the pudding will be that we see it in each other as year goes into year. An ongoing process of growing in the Lord. And then just finally, just go to Galatians. Let's actually read. We're talking about fruit. We're talking about maturity. So let's read the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5. 
the previous verses about the works of the flesh that's us that's us you can read that some other time but this is the fruit of the spirit this is the Lord the fruit of the spirit is love joy peace patience kindness goodness faithfulness gentleness and self-control against such things there's no law there's no law against them because you can do all that lot as much as you like and the Lord will never say stop too much no law against it I mean you know without limit you can produce the fruit of the spirit in your life or, or, or the Lord can so that's the challenge how fruitful we want to be and just to end here just want to chuck one other thing in just because we started off with the parable of the sower slightly different it's a slightly different subject but it's just something that's worth bearing in mind it's something that I felt the Lord showed me once and it was interesting and it's the point that with the parable of the sower all right the seeds were believers so I, I was a seed Jesus was the sower and I was the seed there have been many times believe me when I feel that the Lord has thrown me away but when you've got someone sowing seed they are throwing that seed away <laughs> they're not throwing it away because they want to get rid of it they're throwing it away because that's the only way it can get into the ground and grow but when the seed is being thrown away it can all seem very wasteful here's a farmer with all this precious seed he goes out in the field and he chucks it away now if you didn't understand farming you might think what a waste chucking all that seed away it's not a waste at all by chucking it away that seed is going to become a very great harvest but what it means is there are times when it really does seem to us that the Lord is wasting us do you know what I mean like, like our lives have been thrown away as Christians you can really feel oh this this it's I had such high hopes it all seems such a waste well don't worry that's the sower that's Jesus throwing you into the ground so that you can die and produce fruit so there are times when it seems because after all when we got converted we were going to change the world for Jesus weren't we I mean we were going to have world shattering ministries I mean there was a million things we were going to do now that we were Christians weren't there and so often years later you can think oh it's all come to nothing well that's because what God is really going to do is yet in the future and he, he has to throw us away we have to go into the ground and die and uh, so remember that, 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 that your, your life is the Lord's and because your life is the Lord's because my life belongs to Jesus we're bought with a price if he wants to waste it it's his to waste you see what I mean there's a lot of peace to be found in there the Lord has every right to waste your life if he wants to but he's not wasting it it's just that it looks like that if you don't understand what a sower is doing it looks like he's throwing it all away he's not he's sowing it so that it can come forth in a great harvest and everything that's gone wrong in your Christian life everything that's gone wrong in your life full stop that you look back and it all seems such a waste it's not a waste it's the Lord sowing you into the ground so that you can die to yourself so that the harvest of Jesus and the fruit of the Spirit can be produced in us so don't feel it's a waste feels like it sometimes long years often of you think oh well I had such high hopes from the Lord and nothing don't worry the Lord will do what he's going to do in the future but he has to get us ready now in the present so there you go it's up to us how fruitful how mature do we actually want to be